Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to what is a historic episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Historic because this is actually the third anniversary of our very first podcast, which is kind of unbelievable to me. I can't even believe we've been on the air for that long. And our very first podcast covered, is it better to get an A in college prep or a B in honors? Uh, We also talked a little bit about the new SAT and answered some frequently asked admissions questions. But if you've ever wondered what the answer is to that question, go back to February of 2015 and you will find the answers right there in that episode. So very exciting. I'm also in a phenomenal mood today because I just completed Whole30 and I had an episode of Cupcake Wars on in the background while I was prepping for the show. And I think what I'm going to do after I'm done is... Go have a cupcake. So it's all good today. Uh, Also really good. We have a really great show for you. We're going to be talking about appealing a financial aid award. In office hours, we're going to talk through making sense of early action decisions. I've seen a lot of confusion and um, people kind of perplexed by decisions. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But before we get to that, we're going to do the latest in our summer series. Uh, We've been talking about different program ideas and thoughts for students, depending on what their areas of interest are, on what they can do over the summer. And this week, we're talking about sports. Uh, And joining me is my colleague, Amy Alexander, who just happens to be both a former Yale admissions officer and a collegiate athlete herself. Hi, Amy. Hey, how are you, Beth? I'm doing really well. Excited to talk about this topic with you because I know you have so many great ideas. And actually, do your does at least one of your kids play sports right now at the collegiate level or um, at least at the club yeah. level? Yeah, that's at the I club thought. level. Yeah, okay. I have a son who plays club tennis. He was a varsity tennis player in high school, and he plays club tennis. Um, at uh, Northwestern University, and all three of my kids actually played sports. So I have an older son who played football, soccer, and basketball, and a middle a daughter who p- was a swimmer and also a cheerleader, and my youngest a tennis player. So I've, I've been busy. I've done the carpools. I've done the gamut of sports at all different levels, the varsity level yep. and recreational level. So... Um, yeah, I was, I was glad to, uh, to come in and, and talk about this topic today. Absolutely, because I think I would say that based on your own personal experience, there is sort of no one better to talk us through this. And, of course, we both work with students uh, who have interests in sports and uh, do sports-related things during the summer. So, all right, why don't we start with just some basic thoughts about um, – you know what a student who loves sports, maybe they focus on one sport, maybe they play different sports. What are your initial thoughts um, when you think about a kid who's interested in sports and summers? Well, 
It's a, that's a really good question. And, you know, a lot of times, like I know on the calls we get from our clients, you know, oh, well, my son's not a varsity player or my daughter, you know, isn't really strong in the sport, so I guess she won't spend her summer doing that. We'll find, like, some other thing for her to do. But she loves sports. And I think, oh, that's such a shame because there's very few, when you look at it, very few that actually make the varsity level in high school and or college. But there's thousands that participate at the intramural or club level or just recreational level. So if you're interested in sports, there's so many ways to get involved, and the summers are a great time uh, to get involved and to carry it over through the year. You can, in the summer, you can play sports, a variety of sports. We'll talk about that. You can work a job within certain sports programs. You can volunteer in some way related to sports. You can do sports internships, and there's also summer courses. So there's lots of ways to get involved in sports. The first and kind of probably the most common thing is for students who are really interested in playing is to do sports camps. They offer all kinds of day camps locally. Um, you can do just a day program, 9 to 4, 9 to 5. Um, there's residential overnight camps you can go to for one week or up to eight weeks the whole summer. Um, there's private teams in your area. There's summer leagues in your town or your county. JCC, the Jewish Community Center, offers programs. The YMCA, local community centers. Um, these are typically in the sports of soccer, football, basketball tennis, swimming, field hockey, lacrosse, and golf. So there are others like running and fencing and cycling, but those are the more typical ones that are going to offer camps, if you will, or, you know, kind of uh, organized programs. Um, so for right. any, any kid who wants to do sports, I would say don't hold back. They're, at, they're for all levels. And a lot of these camps, people think, oh, well, my kid's not good enough to go to a camp, but you know, I really, especially I think for boys and girls, it's just good to learn fitness, to have exercise in your routine. Um, they're at all yeah, levels, I, so some camps. Go ahead. No, I was just going to pop in by saying that I was, by no one's estimation, a strong field hockey player in high school. But I went to a field hockey camp, so uh, and it was yeah. something that our coach had suggested we do, and it was a team building thing. And um, I, I think it was a it was a rough week, but a, but actually a really great week. And to your point, you know, good exercise, and you're part of the team. It showed the coach you were committed, so it was made it more likely that I actually made the varsity team. Uh, when I got back to school. So, you know, all of those things, I think, were really great it, when you think about sports. And it teaches camps. you good skills. Like you said, team mm-hmm. building, so that's one thing. It teaches you to be part of a team. I know, you know, I was a swimmer. I started swimming when I was five. I started competing when I was eight, and I went all the way through college. I still, actually, I do master's programs. I do ocean swims, lake swims. So I'm still doing that kind of thing. And I have to say, you know, doing it at that level and there's people that I've worked with or recreationally help them with swimming in the pool who are, you know, very average swimmers and they just want to do laps. But, you know, doing that kind of thing, doing being dedicated to something, committed to something, working with a group, working with others, all those skills translate into other aspects of your life, whether it's relationships, jobs, um, hobbies, other things. It's just such a healthy thing um, to teach you skills that you can use in other facets of your life and at all levels, at all levels. So just absolutely for, 
For me, it's funny. We, um, one of our, one of our colleagues, you know, we were just at a work retreat and we were swimming together in the pool. And there was another colleague that got in and she says, Oh, let me go over here. I'm much slower. And I, we both looked at her and said, You're moving your body. You're moving your body. And <laughs> Don't worry about it. Right. About. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. So for yeah. those kids who maybe, um, they are, they love sports. Maybe they play sports, but maybe they don't necessarily want to play in the summer or they already have one week lined up where they're going to play. You mentioned a little bit earlier, actually jobs with um, sports programs. So what are, what are some thoughts that you have about that where you might actually, instead of spending money, earn some money to do something during the summer? Well, that's the other thing. So some kids maybe need to make money or want to make money, want to learn that responsibility of making money, but they love sports. There are so many ways to get involved. Um, both of my boys were referees for both basketball and soccer, and that brings in quite a bit of money, actually, hourly. You can work mm-hmm. with the little tots all the way up to high school level, and you just go through a training program. It might cost a nominal fee to get your certificate or the program, but then you become a referee, and you can referee all summer and also during the year, too. Uh, for different uh, sporting events or matches. You can help uh, coach a team. with. You can be an assistant coach or a coach trainee. You can work at sports camps um, doing organizational or actually, you know, on the field coaching. There's little league programs. There's youth and community teams. Or there's other ways to get involved uh, if you want to make money, like at your local yoga center or teaching taekwondo. I have a lot of students I've worked with that do that personally, and then they get to that level when they're 16, 17. And they become assistant teachers or instructors. So there's a lot of ways to get involved where you can be doing something athletic but making money, which is a great thing. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. You know, on the flip side, if you don't necessarily have to make money or you, you would rather volunteer, there's just another way. There are so many ways to get involved in sports programs through volunteering in the summer. Again, through that community or enrichment program like Boys and Girls Clubs, the YMCA, uh, Special Olympics. Um, there's a lot of, you know, at our local YMCA, both my daughter when she was in high school and myself, we became buddies to uh, people at the YMCA and taught them how to use equipment um, efficiently and, and properly in proper alignment. So there's a lot of ways to get involved in that way. Special Olympics is a great way. Um, my son volunteered for a program called Succeed Together in our town, tutoring math and teaching tennis and soccer skills to elementary school kids for a summer readiness program. So there's so many ways you can get involved teaching, um, you know, instilling good values, learning skills, both for money or volunteering. So there's so many opportunities. Um, uh, when people yeah. say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. There are so many things <laughs> you can do. Well, and one thing that this highlights for me is I know that sometimes athletes can seem a little one-dimensional if all they do is play sports, even if you're a three-sport athlete, if that's all you're doing, it's okay. But one way to add dimension to that is, okay, you're playing your sports. There are other ways you can get involved that involve sports. That you, So it's you're still doing something you love. And this is a way, actually, kids become kind of what I would call well lopsided, where they don't do everything, but they do a lot in the one area of interest, mm-hmm. um, which I think mm-hmm. is really cool. One one other thing that we well we talked about a couple of other things, uh, but one I'd love to talk about right now are internships. I I Mm. definitely have kids who are maybe 
obsessed in New England, obsessed with whatever local team. Certainly the Patriots are a popular one right now. Go Pats. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, we have a lot of really good sports teams here and they grow, they dream of growing up and working for a sports team. So talk to us a little bit about sports internships. Yeah, and there's a lot. You know, it's harder at the high school level, but it is possible. It's a little bit easier at the collegiate level, like your summers, but I do know kids after junior or senior year of high school that have gotten some cool internships. Local teams, or like you said, the bigger teams, the NBA uh, teams, the NFL teams, those would be fantastic. But a lot of local teams, right? The smaller teams. Uh, yep. We have the Newark Bears, and I had a couple of my son's friends interned at that team. Um, there's radio stations. There's businesses that folk you can, um, you know, TV, TV stations or radio stations or certain businesses you can shadow in production or mm-hmm. uh, you could do marketing or PR. The other thing I've had kids do is um, one kid was a sales intern for a sports apparel, apparel and equipment company. So there's ways, you know, if you think, oh, I'm really interested in sports, I might want to get involved in it, you know, doing these kinds of internships that will give you exposure. And so you can see you can get a taste, um, mm-hmm. and then it's also really good for your resume if, in fact, that is something you want to use or, or go into. Um, the other thing I wanted to make sure to get in is, you know, another way to get involved to see if, in fact, it's what you want to go into or if you're really interested in it. It might become a concentration or a minor in college, if not a major. Are there are summer courses at colleges that cover different sports programs, and a lot of people when they hear they're like, "Oh, that's so cool!" Um, a wide array of sports topics: sports management, business of sports, event management, marketing and PR, as I mentioned, sports law, journalism, sports statistics or analysis. Um, and there's a lot of colleges that offer these programs: UCLA, Fordham, Columbia, Rice, Syracuse, Springfield College, UConn. And many, many more. Um, you know, it's interesting. My son, uh, when he was in high school, really loved sports, and he started a blog. So he wrote a blog before the big, um, you know, uh, maybe it was a big tennis tournament that was going to happen, mm-hmm. like the U.S. Open, or before the Super Bowl, or before the NBA basketball finals, or the college finals. And he would write a blog. And he had a lot of followers and became kind of a thing. Um, he was also interested in sports statistics and analysis and took a course called Moneyball, which was all about, you know, Michael Lewis's book, you know, sports stats mm-hmm. and using that for baseball. So there's so many ways that you can get involved in sports besides just playing. And I love what you said before, that whole idea of, you know, I know myself when I was applying to college, I had, I had a job, but I also had swimming. Swimming, 20, mm-hmm. 30 hours a week swimming, because I didn't yep. have time for anything else. But I did do, uh, you know, I started an NC2A Big Brother, Big Sister program. I, you know, I was a lifeguard. I taught swim lessons because I needed to be near the pool. It was just easier. So, again, right. I was that well lopsided person. So, for someone interested in sports, don't think you're limited to just that. There's so many other ways that you can get involved in sports, especially in the summer when you might have a little more time. 
Right. And I do love what you're saying is you had to be at the pool, not necessarily because you physically like just longed to be by the pool, but also because <laughs> you were practicing, you were there, you, you know, it was going to be too much for you to try to leave the pool to go get a job somewhere else and, and constantly commute back and forth. Getting a job where you needed to be was sort of the perfect, um, mm-hmm. the perfect, you know, kind of marriage of the two. Uh, so many great ideas here. I really, and I, and I think what it, this also highlights for me is, uh, and hopefully for our listeners, is the idea that, A, sports isn't, you know, it's okay if you, take, if you do sports and you're not great at it. It doesn't mean your summer can't be about sports. It also, just because you're interested in sports doesn't mean that all you can do in the summer is do a sports camp. There are so many other ways that you can do something that is sports related. Um, and I so appreciate all these thoughts. Definitely. And listen, if you want to eat those cupcakes, you got to keep your body moving and keep active. So I know. I believe me. I'm, I'm on it. I am on it. So, Amy, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us here today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. All right. We're going to be back in just a minute. And when we are back, we're going to be talking about appealing financial aid awards. Uh, so stay tuned. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, As I promised before the break, we're going to be talking about appealing financial aid awards. And here to talk through that with us is Beth Feinberg-Keenan, who is my colleague here at College Coach and also is a former financial aid officer at Northeastern. Hi, Beth. Hey, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And thanks so much for coming on today to talk about this very important issue and question about appeals. Uh, And I think to kick us off, can it be done? Can, uh, as a parent or a student, can I appeal my financial aid award? And the short answer is yes. I mean, there's really no reason that you can't go back to a school and ask them to take another look at the aid that they offered to you. Um, I always say to families, you know what, the worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to tell you no. So there's nothing, right. you know, you're not going to be any different position than you are when you started the process. But knowing that, you know, this is really your opportunity as a family to go back and say, you know what, hey, there's some new information, or for you to give the school more information about your particular situation that you weren't necessarily able to explain to them when you originally filed for financial aid. Right, right. I, you know, I, just to underscore what you were saying, they're not going to take away the offer of admission if you ask for more money. So if we could dispel that myth, which continues to exist, well, what if I ask for more? They might say, never mind, we don't want you here anyway. That is never going to happen. It has never happened in the history of the world. So, I mean, I suppose if you called up and com- were completely irate and screamed at them and basically threatened someone, all right, maybe they might <laughs> rescind your offer. But otherwise, they're not taking it away. So. Right. And, and, and to be honest with you, I mean, <laughs> I think back to when I was in an aid office and there were some families that were not very nice, but we definitely didn't rescind their admission. We didn't rescind their original financial aid. We might say behind our breaths of like, I hope they don't come. So, you know, <laughs> right. when you're thinking about going back to a school, you know, be nice to them. This is somebody that you may be working with for the next, you know, two, three, four years that your child is going to be there. And if they're able to offer more that first year, you know, maybe they may remember you and say, you know what, really nice family, really interesting situation. Maybe we can find something else for them in the future too. Right, right. Very important um, point. This is a long-term relationship if your child ends up there. So keep that in mind. All right. Well, what are some reasons that appeals are approved for families thinking, oh, we need to appeal this? Uh, what, are, what are the reasons where you would often find that you and your colleagues were approving uh, appeals? We would see so many types of you know, appeals come across our desks. And some of the more common ones were definitely income-related. So maybe you had a change in job that your income um, has gone down. Uh, maybe you were laid off and your income has gone down since, you know, since the, the information that you're filing on that original financial aid application. Other reasons, too, in terms of income, I've seen on the, on the flip side that your income's inflated. Uh, you were laid off and you were given a severance package. You know, you've become gainfully employed but your income is considerably higher because you were given that severance package when you were laid off. Or you sold stock, and it ultimately generated capital gains, so your income is higher than it typically is. So that's one really common reason that families come back is that 
you know, due to an income-related situation. But other situations, uh, you, were di- you became divorced, separated since the time that you applied for financial aid, or maybe that your taxes indicate uh, two-parent household, two-income household, and that's not actually accurate. Uh, one thing that I want to stress here is you're using information from something called base year, and that base year is two tax years back, and a lot of things can happen between those yes. two years. So, yeah. you know, change in marital status. Um, maybe you're in a situation where you receive child support, and that child support is ending. So you have less income uh, for that first year of college, and your total income is decreasing. So there's so many reasons uh, that families come back. There's so many reasons that I could, you know, talk about of why families come back. But I also want to mention, too, that we have a great blog post. And you can look at that blog post and look at so many of the reasons that families reach out to, you know, colleges and reasons that schools may reconsider of giving you more money based upon a change in circumstance or maybe something that you weren't able to provide information to at the time that you were filing for financial aid. Um, right. Maybe and something like medical a- expenses. And I just want to throw a plug in there, Beth, because you mentioned it, the blog, blog.getintocollege.com. So if you're interested in reading it, blog.getintocollege.com. Okay, keep going. So, you know, something else that I think of is medical expenses. You know, I'm working with a family right now, and they have, you know, pages and pages of medical expenses for actually the college-bound student. And it's something that happened recently. And so what the, working with the dad and helping him compile all the medical expenses that he's going to be sending off to the college to say, you know what, we have fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 of unreimbursed medical expenses, and we don't see this going away. Um, this right. is something that's going to be ongoing, and you know, this is affecting our ability to pay and the resources that we have to contribute to our daughter's education. Right, right. So all really good examples. And again, blog.getintocollege.com for uh, additional blogs about this subject. But on the flip side, what are some reasons that appeals don't work? So they want more money, but they don't get more money. Uh, I've seen a lot of them. Um, A lot of it has to do with debt and personal debt. So, you know, when you're thinking about what you can afford to pay and you know, what schools are looking at, and they're not going to take into consideration the credit card debt that you have. Um, So one of the things that you might want to think about is, you know, realistically, what can you afford to pay and maybe try to get that credit card debt paid off before your child is off to college? Because schools aren't going to look at that necessarily, great, you have $20,000 in credit card debt and you have to, you know, pay $500 a month, $1,000 a month, and that can't go towards college-related expenses. Another common one that I used to see when I worked at Northeastern I mean, Northeastern being in Boston is not an inexpensive school. It's not an inexpensive area in Boston. So we'd have families coming to us uh, from New York, from San Francisco, from Chicago, and, you know, saying, do you realize how much we pay for living expenses? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our living expenses are so high. Our taxes are so high. Our mortgages are so high. We can't afford what you're telling us that we have to pay to send, you know, our son or daughter to Northeastern University. And, you know, I would definitely agree with them that you're right, that, you know, your cost of living may be higher than what is assumed in the financial aid formula, but we couldn't go and recalculate everybody's individual personalized living expenses and reevaluate their ability to pay. So depending on where you're living, if you have high taxes, if you have, you know, a large mortgage because of just cost of living in the, t- in the area that you live in, that's not something that colleges are not likely to even look at for an appeal. 
Um, right. If you okay. have younger younger children, uh, younger children in terms of sports costs, another area that I've seen that, you know, you have a child who's on a traveling team and you put a lot of money to, you know, maybe traveling hockey teams or traveling, you know, basketball teams, whatever that sport is. And, you know, something else that a school's not necessarily going to look at as something that they're going to reevaluate your ability to pay at that institution. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to point out that the purpose of financial aid is to um, try to make college more affordable. But as someone I used to travel with from Georgetown used to say, it's not about, it's about, sometimes college is about making sacrifice. And I think we could have a whole different philosophical conversation around how much of a sacrifice it really makes sense for a family to make. But if you are going to uh, include private institutions with very high price tags on them, then there is probably going to be significant sacrifice involved. Financial aid is going to meet what they think is your need, not necessarily what they think is your want. We all have, there's a difference between want and need, right? Um, Right. Yeah. Uh, I think my, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, but go ahead. One of my favorite things was, you know, and again, this is something that I used to deal with at Northeastern too, is, you know, families coming to the aid office and saying, you know, we don't have any money left. You know, what else can you do for the child? We already put child one and two through school. We just have high debt. And you know, I used to want to say to them, you know, there's no buy one, get one free or buy two, get one free. Right. So the choices that you yes. made in the, in, in, the few, in the past, uh, unfortunately, impact the choices that you can make for this child that's, you know, college bound this year. So it's so yeah. important to think big picture, too, and what you really can afford and what's within your, your constraints and resources that you have. Right, and not blowing it all on the first two if you know you have a third. Um, exactly. Because while colleges will take it into consideration if you have one more, than, more than one child in college, right? But what if the first two are ultimately done with college before your third child is done with college? then the bill is going to go up because you won't have the expenses for the other two. And if you've already spent everything you can afford to spend, that, as you, as you point out, the college is not necessarily going to care. They're not going to take it. They may care, but they can't take it into consideration. Right. It goes um, back to that debt. Yep. Absolutely. It does. Um, all right. Well, when, when it comes to the actual appeal itself, who should be writing that? Is that? Should that come from the parents? Should it come from the students? You know, it typically appeals are really tied to the family's ability to pay. And I think realistically, I think the parents are, really have the better understanding of the, of the family's ability to pay for college. And also not only in terms of ability to pay for college, also what resources they have to potentially borrow and repay loans. So my preference is that it comes from the parents because mm-hmm. I think the parents can paint a better picture um, of really the financial aspects and being able to afford that college cost. But, you know, if the student has something that they want to share, um, I don't think it hurts for the student to also include a letter, Um, you know, really maybe giving the personal aspects of why they really want to go to that school. But in terms of really laying out X, Y, Z, this is what's happening, this is what we weren't able to share with you, uh, that should come from the parents. Okay, great. And so let's say you've filed your, uh, your financial information, you've gotten a financial aid award, um, but now there's a change in your situation. When and how do you let the college know about that and in, in essence file that appeal? 
So there's a couple of different, you know, you know, wheels of thought, you know, trains of thought to think about letting the school know. Um, I've had families who have just called the school just to have that con- that initial conversation, letting them know that they've had a change in circumstances. But remember that you want to let the school know about things that maybe weren't included in that original um, information that you submitted on the financial aid application um, or a change in circumstances. And typically it's, you know, it's monetary. It's something that you need to document. So while an initial conversation I think is fine, uh, the individual that you speak with can document that information in your child's um, financial aid application in their system, they're likely going to ask you to follow up with some you know, something additional in writing, whether that's a letter, uh, whether that's an email that you're going to send to the school, and some supporting documentation. So if you've had a change in income, it's likely that the school is going to ask for a copy of your taxes to make sure that you can send a copy of your federal taxes to the school. Um, Mm -hmm. If you were laid off, it's likely that you're going to have to submit your last pay stub information on your severance that um, you're collect- that you've been given if you're offered a severance. If you're collecting unemployment, you know, what are you receiving unemployment? Because, you know, families often think that, hey, I was laid off, I have no more income. And for many families, that's not the case. While your income is considerably reduced, many families might be collecting unemployment. So there is some type of income, it's, you know, often considerably lower, but the school wants to look at a true projected income. And if it's something based on, you know, high medical expenses, high dental expenses, or maybe there's a natural disaster and you had to put a new roof on your house. So they want to see that those receipts. So you want to make sure that you have you know, canceled checks. You want to have the bills that you're paying that you can provide that to the college and university so they can have that information when they're reviewing this change and that documentation to support any changes they're willing to make in terms of offering more financial assistance um, to your family. Got it. But in terms of timing, because you asked about that too, Beth, you asked Mm -hmm. about terms of timing, you know, any time is really a good time. So if this is a change (laughs) that you know about after you file the financial aid applications, let the school know immediately. So submit your financial aid applications, turn around, get that information ready, and send it off to the financial aid office because if they have it early on, they may be able to review that information at the time of the initial award. The time after you get the reward, after the time you get the award, you can just follow back up with them. Hey, right. got my award. You know, wanted to make sure that you're able to take into consideration our extenuating circumstances, the change in information. Maybe they didn't look at it initially, so they have to go back. Maybe you know, great if they did look at it. But right. things can also happen mid-year, too. Like, I think about, like, when I was in college. Um, I mean, it was years ago, but my parents lost their business. It was my um, second year. It was the second semester going into college, so I was already a year and a half under my belt, and my parents lost their business. And that's the time that they reached out to the aid office. And they, were, you know, worked with the aid office to go back and say, you know what? We're closing our business. You know, at the time, my dad, you know, was looking for another job. But it was definitely a big change for my family. I was, you know, halfway across the country and, you know, their livelihood for the past, you know, 20 plus years of my life, you know, was gone. So the school, that situation, they were fantastic. They were able to help me give me more money. You know, they looked at ways that they could help support my family um, in allowing me to stay there at the college and, you know, ultimately complete my degree. Got it. Got it. Very quickly, because we literally have about one minute left. Um, 
should you tell the college exactly how much money you need? And if you appeal once and you get more money or you, they say no, can you do it a second time? So somewhat related, but not entirely. You know, in terms of letting the school know about how much more money, you know, if, you, if there's a certain shortfall, you know, it doesn't hurt. But it's also important to be realistic. You know, if you go back to the school and say, hey, you know, I need $20,000. Um, I don't think that's something that the school is realistically going to be able to help you with. But if you put a plan together and say, you know what, this is what we can come up with. This is where our shortfall is. These are, this is our change in situation. This is what we're looking for. If it's a few thousand dollars, you know, this is something that they might be able to help you with. But remember that this is an appeal, and it's often due to a change in circumstances. So this money may only be for that first year and not renewable necessarily for years two, three, and four. So I also want you to think about that. And can mm-hmm. you go back and ask for more? You can. I mean, you don't want to burn bridges, but right. you can go back and ask for more. We had, you know, one family, you know, a number of years ago do that. They had a successful, you know, outcome. That's great. It's not always the case. But at least, you know, Got you it. tried and you want to make sure that, you know, you didn't leave anything left on the table. Absolutely. And I think the key here is be respectful. Understand that if your child does enroll, this is a long-term relationship. Uh, So you want to make sure that these are pleasant conversations. Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Beth. I really appreciate it, too. Have a wonderful day. You, too. All right. When we come back, office hours, making sense of early action decisions. Uh, So don't go away. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. 
Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are going to be talking about early action decisions. This, these started rolling in uh, in December, and in some cases, they're actually still rolling in because there are a number of schools with early action deadlines who don't notify until January, and there might even be one or two that notify in February. Um, but we're seeing some angst and confusion around early action decisions, so we thought that we would use today's office hours to talk through that, and joining me is my colleague who is a former uh, University of Southern California admissions officer and also a former high school counselor, so has seen this from both sides in addition to her work here at College Coach, uh, Emily Toffelmeyer. Hi, Emily. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks, and thanks for joining today to talk about early action and kind of making sense of those results. So um, we, as a group, there is, there is a fairly large group of us at College Coach who do this work and a lot of back and forth on uh, email and then also um, on some other platforms where we talk a little about things that are going on and trends that we're seeing. And one thing that I'm seeing a lot of are uh, parents and students surprised by early action decisions. And so what are your initial thoughts on, on um, the number of deferrals we see in early action? And we don't see that many denials because a lot of schools don't deny in early action, but just your general kind of take on that. Yeah, well, and that's a good point too, the, the low number of deferrals. So I think even if a student feels discouraged or unsure to apply early action. I feel like for so many students, it can't hurt just to get it in early, get it off your plate. It kind of psychologically feels good to be done with it. Um, but yeah, I think there's been a lot of disappointment this year, and I think that disappointment is going to continue. And I think it's because the number of students who are applying early action increases every year. Um, if, you, if you look at the news releases from different admission offices, you'll see that everybody reports an increase, whether it's 5% or 15%. So I think as more families become aware of this option, it's only going to make the early action pools more competitive and lead to disappointment. So whenever I talk yeah. to students, they say, hey, this isn't going to be a miracle worker. This doesn't mean everything's a shoe-in, um, but you might as well express your interest early and see what happens. And usually the worst-case scenario is just a deferral. Right, right, exactly. And I think what people need to keep in mind is that there's a huge difference between early action and early decision in that when you apply early decision, you are committing to that institution. So if they admit you, you're coming and that impacts their yield, which is a number that lots of people pay attention to. Uh, and it essentially is the percentage of students that you offer acceptance to who take you up on that offer. And for whatever reason, we have decided, I know what the reason is, but <laughs> because of rankings, we have decided that that yield number is so important that we're going to give it so much credence that the colleges, therefore, uh, are really pressed to try to admit students who they think are going to come. And... Um, so early decision allows them to do that because it's basically a 100% yield and that you know, plays off nicely against whatever the yield is in regular. But with early action, no one's agreeing to anything. All that you're saying is, hey, I'm going to get my application in early. I'm going to give you an opportunity to read it early. And as a result, I'm going to get an early answer. However, I may get an early non-answer, which is essentially what a deferral is, right? It's we don't know yet. We're not saying one way or the other. So 
here you go. Here's your early non-answer. But there is zero reason for a college to accept a student if they're not sure that they are amongst the best that they want to admit or in the group that they want to admit and they haven't seen their regular decision pool yet. So unless they're sure that, wow, of everybody else who's applied, you know, this is one of the, the kids we know we will admit regardless of who else comes in, they're often going to make that decision to defer. Yeah, they're hedging their bets too, right? They don't want to offer all the spaces to early action students because the students who apply early action tend to be a really impressive pool of students, like great numbers, great accomplishments. And those are, school, those are students that schools know they might not be the first choice of that student. That student probably has yep. a lot of apps out. They're probably going to get some good offers. So if you throw an offer to everybody who's great in your early action pool, that's just not smart strategy from the right. admission side of things, which brings up a good point. But early action and early decision, that's not something that was created for the benefit of students. So it's something that was created for the benefit of yield, for numbers, for averages, for admission offices, right? I mean, it feels good for some students to get the early decision in and to know they've been accepted somewhere and have their work done early. But no, at the end of the day, like no admission office created this as a perk for students. It's something that really serves the institution's needs. Right, right. It, it has, it can be very beneficial for the students, but you're right. At the end of the day, the job of the college and the university is to serve their needs and bring in the class that makes sense for them. And this is one of the ways in which they do that. So it's an excellent point. And I, you also made a nice point that, um, it sometimes so there are a few different reasons why we're seeing surprise. Um, we're seeing surprise because maybe a school was um, a safety, and yet a student didn't get an early offer. Uh, and you would think, well, he's likely one of the best. Why didn't they extend an offer of acceptance? But there's your point, which is the school may be very well aware that this is a safety and they don't want to extend an offer of admission to a student who maybe is already applied early decision somewhere else and may not be in a position to accept their offer or they just want to see if the student is really interested. Do they follow up on the deferral uh, and turn, you know, click the link saying they still want to be considered or maybe send a follow-up letter if that's appropriate and the school says you can do that. Uh, and that's a way in which they can say, yeah, this is actually a student who really wants to be here or at least has very uh, a lot of interest in us. And that's another reason why you might get deferred in the early action round because they're just not sure how interested you are. Um, one other thing I wanted to, to, or amongst many things we could talk about related to this is the whole question of are they who they're admitting in early action. Um, there are some schools that actually reserve early action for only the very best academic students. Uh, and, you know, I would just be curious about your thoughts about that process and how you've seen that play out um, in, in students' decisions. Yeah, I would say, you know, from what I've seen at College Coach, because at USC, we were not early action or early decision. But it was a pretty strong policy against that because the philosophy of the dean and the vice president was simply that it served students who were coming from mostly affluent areas with college-going parents, um, mm -hmm. and it wasn't really benefiting any other population. So I don't have experience you know, on that side of it, but what I've seen at College Coach and the families I talk to is, is yeah, this, this kind of um, confusion about whether or not what their chances are, and, and what I see from the decisions coming in is a lot of it seems to rely on the test scores, to be honest, and I think that is 
EA and ED are a good way for schools to shore up those high numbers, those high averages. If you've ever worked in admission, you know that your dean is very big on raising that average ACT or SAT score every year for the incoming class. So the pattern I seem to be seeing is a lot of the students who have maybe a 34, 35, 36 on the ACT, probably a 1,500-plus on the SAT, these seem to be the students who are doing pretty well in the early action process. Um, But it's also stuff that might be out of the student's control. So we talked about institutional needs. Um, That might Mm -hmm. be geography. You know, hey, kid from South Dakota, you're probably going to do okay in early action because (laughs) a lot of schools aren't going to get applications from your state. Um, Or, you know, I I know a student who, you know, she's um, a female who wants to study computer science. um, and, And as much as there's this burgeoning interest from women in, the, in that field, it's still a relatively small population who's applying. Um, you know, so she was able to get an early for that program at a very elite Ivy university. And it was probably just because of her interest. Um, and I guess your interests are in your control, but at the end of the day, you should apply for the major that you actually want. And that's what she did. And she was able to get in. So I think it's, it's numbers, it's SATs, but it also sometimes is you just filling a need for that institution. Absolutely. There are actually some schools with specific policies that they are very upfront about. Uh, Georgetown comes to mind. Uh, I think they are the most upfront about it, but I also think BC does some of this and Notre Dame. Um, so you're seeing a trend there. Maybe there's something about the Jesuit schools or the Catholic schools. But Georgetown is very specific. They do not admit anyone in early action who is not a top academic admit. So that means they don't admit athletes. They're not looking at legacy. They're not looking at those special niches that they need to fill. All they're doing is looking at who are the students who represent our top academic applicants. And that's the only pool that they are going to admit from in early action. So their take is unless you are going to be one of those people, don't even bother being in our early action pool. And And that raises a really good point around the idea that somehow you are indicating interest by being in the early action pool. And uh, I I don't, they're not really caring about that. Applying and doing a good job on your application is the most important thing. Um, So while I completely agree that you don't really hurt yourself by being in the early action pool, if the college has that stated uh, policy, then you should at least expect the deferral and know that, yeah, you're going to get it in early, but you're probably not going to get an early answer. You're going to get an early non-answer and you're going to have to wait like everybody else does. But on, on, that, on a similar theme, what about um, the schools where, well, where you're looking at the statistical information about early action versus regular decision, and you're seeing higher acceptance percentages in the early action round than you do in the regular round? How do you make sense of that? Because it's counterintuitive. We're telling you it doesn't give you an advantage. You're looking at percentages that seem to indicate it does give you an advantage. Where's the disconnect? Yeah, well, that's uh, speaking of the percentages, you know, this, this information is usually available online. Uh, some universities are more transparent than others, so uh, bringing up Georgetown is a great example. And, you know, Boston College has a similar reputation, and, and they're very straightforward about it. They say, hey, if you're not the cream of the crop, don't bother applying early action to Boston College. Uh, their average SAT for early action is usually 50 to 60 points higher than the admitted students for regular decision. So you can do this research. You can go to college board websites. You can do a search for, you know, Boston College early action, and you'll usually find a very recent 
um, campus newspaper article about that year's admitted early action class. So the information is out there. It just takes a little research and can also ask the admission office directly, of course, about what their advice is, and I think they'll be pretty honest with you. Um, but I think it's really hard to make sense of the numbers, and I think paying attention to the percentages is actually a bad idea. I think what you should look at instead is just look at the averages for those admitted students. So look at the average SAT, the average GPA, um, just look at the makeup of that class, and I think that's going to give you a better idea of if you stand a chance than just looking at a percentage. Right, right, because I think the, the, a big point is a lot of these pools are self-selected. So most kids are not going to apply single-choice early action to a Stanford or a Harvard or a Yale on a whim. They're going to do it because they have uh, what they believe is a competitive application, and in many cases they may be right, because otherwise they probably will be shooting for different schools, and they may want to put an application in at those schools, but they're more realistic about, hey, I don't know that I want to use my one in that case because it's single choice. I don't really want to use my one early piece with a school that's going to not allow me to maybe take advantage of early decision somewhere else or do something like that. So that's, that is, um, you know, that, that's where the disconnect comes from. And I think great advice around looking for what are the, what's the breakdown of that early pool versus the regular pool. Um, Anything else that you we we're, we have about one more minute, and I didn't know if there was anything else that you wanted to add about this, or um, sort of solace for families who are <laughs> facing the these non-answers uh, in the form of deferrals in the early round. Well, I'll just mention one more resource, um, and then that's one that many high school students have, and the parents also have access to, which is. Um, Naviance, which I've been calling Naviance for years, and then I watched a recent webinar given by the company, and the employee pronounced it Naviance, so there you go. Um, <laughs> All so right. this, is, um, this is a great program that a lot of high schools use, and the counselors and the, the counseling office inputs information um, about student applications, student admission rates to different colleges. So this is, unlike College Board's national information, Naviance shows you very school-specific results for your school. So if you're considering applying early action for a school, but you notice, wow, everybody else at this at my high school applies early action to Boston College too, maybe I should just hold off a regular decision so I'm not in this crowded pool of other applicants from my school. It's really good information. You can see what the average admitted GPA and test score are for these students. Maybe that can help you strategize and prioritize early action and regular decision applications just using that very local data. Perfect. Yes. Great advice. Emily, thank you so much. Thanks to all my guests today. Next week, Sally's here. She's going to be doing another in our summer series on volunteering. Uh, We're also going to be talking about trends, overall trends from the early round. So kind of building on the conversation today and then scholarship negotiation. Uh, Don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.